I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. In an effort to contain COVID-19 outbreaks from occurring in hospitals and other congregate care settings, public health policy experts very quickly limited access to essential personnel only, banning non-essential visitors. Left out of that definition of essential are family partners in care. Today, I'm joined by Julie Drury to discuss why family care providers are not just a visitor. Julie is the Strategic Lead Patient Partnerships at the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. Prior to joining CFHI, Julie was a career public servant who worked as a senior advisor and director in strategic policy, planning, and reporting across many different files. She developed the framework and strategy for including persons with lived experience into the policy direction of the Federal Opioids Task Force and is the former chair of the Minister's Patient and Family Advisory Council for Ontario. Thank you for joining me, Julie. Thanks, Jody. Pleasure to be with you. So let's just uh, get started. What do family caregivers do and how is it more than just visiting? Family caregivers are, as your introduction stated, are actually essential partners in care. And this, this term of visitors, which all of a sudden has encapsulated everyone, anyone who, who might have a loved one in the healthcare system, be it in hospital, group home, or long-term care setting, uh, is, has actually been quite disturbing and distressing to family caregivers who have partnership and created allyship in healthcare and are, quite frankly, performing many essential duties in healthcare settings for their loved ones. And some of those essential duties, I, I mean, you know, supporting, it, it includes supporting medical procedures, right? Absolutely. Um, evidence has shown us over the past several years, and this is work that's been done at the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement in partnership with one of our collaborator collaborators, the Institute for Patient and Family-Centered Care out of the U.S. That evidence and information is showing us that uh, family caregivers uh, help to reduce medication errors. They provide oversight and continuity of care. Um, their presence reduces patient falls and patient injury from falls by over 60%. Um, that integration of family caregiver presence reduces readmissions. Um, it helps to support better transitions in care, be it from hospital to home or from uh, hospital to long-term care. And uh, interestingly enough, the family presence increases staff satisfaction. There's a sense of allyship there, partnership there, and, uh, and it improves that, that relationship between the healthcare clinical team uh, and the patient, um, as well as the family and caregiver. Um, I won't even belabor the fact that uh, it makes a lot of sense that this also um, improves um, the emotional well-being of patients and reduces anxiety and distress. And more specifically, in response to your, your question, you asked about medical procedures. You know, many families um, perform things such as suctioning, uh, G-tube feeds, which is would be feeds through a, um, a, a different port in the in the patient's body. Um, they they perform central line procedures. Um, they perform procedures such as um, subcutaneous injections of immunoglobulins. There's lots of things that families do in care settings that I think the general public isn't really aware of, nor are some of the persons who are creating these blanket restriction policies. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in hospital personally um, and a lot of time in hospital with family members. And then, of course, I worked in a hospital. And, you know, one of the things uh, that I always think about is that um, family members are another source of information. They're another eyes and ears. They're, they're a layer of risk management or, or a safety net, uh, you know, against 
things getting missed or, or, or overlooked? Absolutely. I mean, as I said before, there's a really important role here from a continuity of care point of view. If you think about the persons who are entering hospital or persons who are, who are residents in long-term care, uh, often when they're coming to hospital, they're in crisis. They're in an active cardiac situation or they're having a stroke or there's some sort of event where their ability to advocate for themselves, to share critical information about their healthcare history and to um, act as actors around continuity of care is compromised. And that's why you have a loved one who's present and can share, here's the medication that they're on, here are previous surgeries that they've had, here's their history of heart disease or stroke in the family. And to remove that from the conversation, uh, it's dangerous, it creates harm, and it is very much an indicator of patient safety. And as, as much as it is difficult for potentially for hospitals or for um, uh, health officials to realize and recognize that, it is the reality in the healthcare system right now. We do not have the health human resources capacity to cover a patient 24-7 and to be at bedside with them. And we rely heavily, heavily on families to play that role. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important for people to understand in many ways, um, you know, family caregiver presence is a fundamental part of the model of care. It, it's assumed. And it should be assumed. You know, we talk quite a bit about, I'm sure you've heard as well, patient-centered care and the quadruple aim of patient experience being part of, you know, the, the, the measures of how we structure our healthcare system. And certainly in the past several years, we've talked quite a bit and put a lot of emphasis on patient engagement, patient and family and caregiver partnership and collaboration in developing program and practice and policy. And it's, it's distressful to me, disturbing to me as a person who has worked in this space now for close to a decade, that uh, we've come into a crisis situation where we have forgotten all the lessons learned and some of the really important levers and values in our healthcare system. And that's not to say that in early days of this pandemic and this crisis that um, perhaps blanket restriction policies might have been appropriate as we try to get ourselves reoriented and to figure out the situation. But we are eight weeks in. And some of the uh, potential crises that we thought uh, we were going to be facing have not become a reality. We're starting to talk about how we are going to reintegrate um, you know, physical distancing, um, how we're going to reintegrate businesses opening and restart our economy. And uh, we aren't talking about what that looks like from the reintegration of, of, of family caregiver presence across our healthcare system um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a well-considered and in a triaged way. And I'm hoping that those conversations are going to start soon. There's an ethical dimension to all of this. So, of course, there's, you know, the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. Um, but that oath of or, or that, that goal of do no harm, I think what you're saying really pulls you in two directions. And it's about finding the space in between um, blanket restrictions and uh, thoughtful policy that recognizes the harm reducing role that essential partners in care provide. Yeah, I agree with you. That is that is very much the challenge facing us facing us now. And many people are ready to step up and to face that challenge. 
And, uh, you know, my call to action in response to that would be to ensure that there are many partners with different types of expertise around that table. Um, many of uh, persons from our medical community, from our community of geriatricians and from our community of psychiatrists and psychologists are raising the alarm about the emotional distress, the, um, the vacuum of compassion, and the fact that as human beings, we don't just crave physical contact with loved ones, we actually physically need it. Um, from an emotional point of view, but also from a physical wellness point of view. And so we're seeing some evidence and research emerge about confinement syndrome. And this is where persons who um, are essentially, you know, left in their rooms, left in their beds, not able to uh, either ambulate or be moved around themselves, uh, be moved around by someone else to um, have contact with others to see loved ones and to be stimulated in an emotional and a cognitive way by loved ones are starting to suffer and starting to decline, um, both cognitively, but also physically. And that is a real situation that we are all facing right now. So as we start to think through what these reintegration considerations or recommendations or policy will be, We've got to have those different voices around the table. This is no longer a public health crisis. This is a much larger crisis that requires a broader range of expertise. And it also requires patients, families, and caregivers to be at the table as well. Um, how much do you think this is driven by, you know, concerns about PPE? I mean, I, I actually find the situation a little bit shocking. You know, when I think of my colleagues um, who I used to work with, um, across, you know, various health systems, um, you know, uh, they, they, they often advocated on behalf of patients and they, and, the, and their families, and they thought about them frequently. And I would say fundamentally. So how much do you think this is being, you know, driven by a lack of PPE or, or, or where is it coming from? I think there's a couple of things at play, um, Jody. I think PPE certainly is has been a theme of what's going on right now um, in Canada, if not internationally. Right? It's you know I don't think anyone heard the term PPE before um, COVID nineteen hit. Um, so certainly the lack of personal protective equipment or PPE is of concern. I think the other is that you know uh, those who are working front lines. There's incredible, incredible pressure on them uh, and uh, both emotional and physical stress being placed on them. And they are also fearful of what it might look like to bring in um, more people into healthcare settings. And I, and I say more people because I don't mean um, necessarily that, you know, families and caregivers are an additional vector of transition, but it's more people in the, in the healthcare setting. So they're fearful. They're honest about that. They're also quite concerned about the uh, emotional distress that's occurring for their patients um, as well as themselves. Um, it's extremely challenging for them to be watching families um, uh, not together in times of, of great distress, uh, be it in an acute or crisis situation or in a palliative situation or in some instances end of life where families are separated. Um, I think as well that, you know, we've seen um, a, a, an ongoing shift um, of knowledge about COVID-19. 
from where we were in the early days back in late December, early January, when this wasn't a thought for Canada, to where we are now. We've learned a lot. We're learning about, you know, how this is being transmitted. We're learning about how we control it. Uh, we're learning about the impacts that it can have on, on the physical body of the person and how to effectively treat it. You know, it almost seems every 24 hours in the news cycle, there's new information coming out as to how we can guard against it and how we actually treat it. Uh, so that's a challenging situation as well. We're dealing with an unknown entity. Um, we are never going to be perfect in responding to this situation. Um, and perfection is, is going to be the enemy of us doing good. And uh, I think there's opportunity here now. Again, we've learned enough about these blanket restriction policies that um, they're important in some respects and they're harmful in others. And that there's got to be um, a middle ground of how we uh, how we both support um, the the healthcare system to not see you know more more outbreaks and more vectors of transmission, but also how we ensure the emotional uh, health of our loved ones and also their physical safety. So I guess you know I'm not I'm not giving you a solution, um, but I, what I am saying is that the potential for solution lies in us all collaborating on this and, and, and coming back to um, our baseline that um, family caregiver presence has been extremely important in the healthcare system. And then that, that hasn't changed. Uh, they still are essential partners in care and we can find a way to bring them back in. Um, I'll give the example of, of some pediatric healthcare centers in Canada who are leading and uh, and have from the very outset said, parents are essential. They're not visitors. We cannot run our healthcare facility without them. And from the very beginning, they were treated like staff. Uh, they were screened like staff. They were offered um, education support about infection control protocols, such as hand washing, um, and and what their physical distancing should like look like between home and hospital. Um, and they and they continued to uh, be at bedside with their loved ones. And I think we can learn a lot from those settings. Yeah, one of the things uh, that strikes me about your your writing and your advocacy is that not only um, are our family members um, essential partners in care, but they're essential partners in policy making. And um, a recent example um, in our shared hometown of um, Ottawa really brought that to the fore for me. And that that was when um, uh, one of the long-term care homes uh, here in the area stopped um, window visitations. And, you know, when I read the story, I immediately knew that they, they must have had concerns, like, you know, patients um, coming into too close of contact um, on the side of the window. They might have had worries about the window itself if people were coming too close to the window. Um, and they may have been worried about contact, uh, even on the outside, between um, families um, who, you know, were trying to get access to the window. But, you know, to me, because family members have such a vested interest in having access to that window, why not include them in developing a policy that minimizes uh, the uh, troubling behaviors that, that you're seeing rather than just saying window visits are canceled? Lived experience, Jody, is a powerful tool that has been massively underutilized, in my opinion. And as I've said, I, I've seen 
really great change across the system in the past few years of being in this, these types of roles. I mean, most significantly in your introduction was my work with Health Canada with the Opioids Task Force, where the minister at the time was very specific that she wanted us to bring in the lived experience of persons who had habituation um, uh, to, to drugs and, and with their loved ones. There was no way that we were going to develop appropriate policy and to support guidance around programs if we weren't hearing from what the challenges, what the barriers were, um, but not only that, also what some solutions and drivers were. And there are a lot of people out there like myself who have great expertise in quality engagement and partnership that understand how to bring in public participation into these conversations. And when we don't do that, uh, our policies that we put in place can, as your example just shown, result in um, negative public backlash, uh, public outcry. They can be harmful and they can lead us down the wrong direction. Uh, and so that component of lived experience for anyone who wants to do effective policy work, it has to be a core component and it has to be um, part of shared power and shared purpose. This isn't just, you know, bouncing ideas off of patients, families and caregivers to get their feedback or their advice. This is about collaborating with them, partnering with them. I won't use the word co-design because I feel it's overused in our healthcare system, but those principles of designing together and what that looks like, we don't see that enough in our healthcare system. And certainly in this time of crisis, uh, because of how quickly things have had to move, the excuse has been made, we don't have time to bring in that lived experience perspective. My argument is that there are many with lived experience that are poised and ready to be at any table, on any call, because we're all working virtually right now, on any call to have these conversations. Uh, and so I'm hoping that um, our leadership across the healthcare sector, not only in our own city, but across the country, are going to come back to the realization that we need to bring in um, the patients, the families, and the caregivers that have this lived experience to help support us in designing policy that's really going to work for everyone. So what does the road back to a patient and family informed access policy look like? Um, I noticed that uh, you and Maggie Karastechi and Claire Snyman have uh, published a, a Medium post and, and I won't make you recite the, the five points. I'll, I'll, I'll nudge you along with them. Um, we've talked about the difference between a visitor and a caregiver, um, which is point number one. But point number two is about collaboration on a new policy. And you've outlined sort of four sub points on this, where the first step is looking at um, specific high risk and high needs patients and residents. So can you help us understand what types of, you know, just even through, through uh, non-exhaustive examples, what types of patients um, need their family care partners more than others? This is going to require some study and, again, um, a, a broad table um, with good representation from various sectors. Um, off the top of my head, here are some of the recommendations that, that I would make. 
Uh, one is that we identify one to two essential family caregivers as partners in care. So we are not lifting um, uh, a blanket restriction on visitors because visitors in our healthcare sector, uh, healthcare systems, uh, is not appropriate right now. Um, but we can um, include an identified family member or key caregiver to that patient um, that can support them at bedside and support that person with the appropriate uh, information, education, PPE if it's available. We've got to think about priority patient populations. So perhaps every single patient in hospital or in residence long-term care right now or in group home might not need um, in, with immediacy the access to a family caregiver. But certainly persons who have dementia or altered ability to make decisions, maybe they're in some kind of uh, different state of consciousness because of the level of their illness, persons who have um, developmental disabilities and or physical disabilities such as blindness or deafness, hard of hearing, who need to have um, interpretation or support in making their needs um, known in regards to their illness. Um, persons who, uh, who are in crisis situations. So I'm thinking, you know, of a, of a, of a woman that I am uh, coaching right now and supporting right now, whose husband suffered a stroke just 10 days ago, and she was forced to leave him at the doors of the emerging department and has had very little role in his care, um, uh, since that time. Um, she hasn't partnered in decision-making with him. She hasn't been able to support him from an emotional well-being point of view. She hasn't been part of, you know, clinical decisions about his care. And he's not in a position right now to advocate for himself. Persons who are palliative. So right now, end of life is recognized. End of life is extremely hard to assess. And I can tell you that from a very personal point of view. Um, so persons who are palliative, who are that unwell, and who deserve the support um, and require the support of a loved one um, in these final weeks or months of their of their life here on earth. Those would be uh, examples of some of the patient populations right now um, that need um, that that must be uh, prioritized or triaged to have family caregiver presence. So I think what we can do, Jody, is develop what I would call a reintegration plan or considerations for reintegration. Every, um, you know, provincial uh, ministry of health and chief medical officer of health is going to have, you know, their own perspective on this. But I think there's an opportunity to pull together what a reintegration plan and considerations might be. And I'm thrilled that um, the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement is going to provide leadership in this space. Um, I'll be the point person on this to pull together uh, such a group to help develop these considerations. And, you know, they're not going to occur quickly. And I, I hope other jurisdictions are thinking about doing the same thing. But these would be some of the, the actions and the steps, um, bringing in clinicians, bioethicists, um, persons from the legal profession, persons from the nursing profession, medical officers of health, and patients, families, and caregivers uh, into that conversation so we can discuss this and plan this together. I yes. want to address sort of like kind of point two of your question because that's really about family caregiver presence, but you you sort of introduced the question talking about patient and family engagement. Um, and we need to get back to that space as well. So it's occurring in some sectors. There are some pandemic tables that have one patient partner at the table, and I'm not sure 
how effective that is um, of having one person in a, in a large group like that. Uh, but we need to get back to a place where, um, in my opinion, every provincial ministry of health across this country has um, uh, the the opportunity to seek advice and get counsel from a, a team of patient, family, and caregiver advisors and partners that can help to guide on on policy, uh, practice, and program within their ministries of health and with their, within their provinces. Yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity here. Um, uh, just to you know, put in my own two cents is that you know as we review these policies and we look um, at uh, reintegration and sometimes reintegration will be virtual, but sometimes for those essential partners in care, it'll be you know physical presence. Um, but there's a huge research opportunity here. Um, we don't know in pandemic settings. Um, what um, the appropriate balance is. And, um, the uh, you know, there are very few things that clinicians and clinician scientists uh, agree, agree on, but I think they would all agree that this is not our last pandemic. <laughs> There's nothing about this pandemic that would suggest that it, it's going to be, you know, the last one. So knowing that to be the case, you know, I think it really uh, behooves us all to to put some research effort into um, studying what what are the right policies, and of course, it's going to look a little bit different uh, based on the uh, the patient population and other factors um, related to the healthcare setting. But understanding what those you know levers are, uh, what you know who does you know what what are the vectors um, of transmission, so that we can better balance out um, the harms. Have you heard anything about you know sort of you know, research, uh, like forward-looking research uh, around this question? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, and you're so right. We got a bit caught, right? We got a bit caught um, with not having thought through uh, what policy would look like in a circumstance like this, and not just policy regarding family and caregiver presence, but policy regarding patient and family and caregiver partnership, um, what access to care would look like and a continuity plan around access to care. There are a, a, a couple of different tangents of policy that um, we could have thought through that would have us better prepared. And uh, so there's a massive lesson learned here. And, and uh, it's not about finger pointing and, and sort of saying you didn't do this right or you did it wrong. It's really about pulling together and, and, and figuring out what could be better. Uh, I am um, aware of many initiatives currently underway, uh, funding proposals going through various channels, and I'm participating in, in actively in three of them as an active researcher uh, and partner to look at a couple of things. Um, most specifically right now for me uh, is around family and caregiver presence as essential partners in care the harm that has occurred by removing that presence uh, and looking at data related to patient safety, patient harm, poor patient outcomes. Uh, and so that is with a team of researchers, um, mostly out of Alberta, but also across the country. We're also looking at opportunities to conduct some policy think tanks or policy labs. Um, and again, this is in partnership with multiple organizations to think through uh, what is the evidence as we know it? What's the evidence that's building? What do we not know? So what are the gaps in the evidence? Um, thinking through um, some potential policy pitches, right? A bit of a dragon den, dragon's den of policy. Here's what we, here's what we could do uh, based on, on, on what we know and what our best evidence is to date. And here's how we might react to a similar crisis or a pandemic in the future. 
so some of that work is being planned or being suggested and some of it is underway. And I would expect that um, there's a much more going on that I'm aware of uh, where uh, people are going to be examining very specific sectors as well and where our post-pandemic analysis is going to be really, really robust. Well, that's fantastic. And so before I let you go, I do have one more question for you. Um, Diana Sunita tweeted, essential partners in care, family-centered care, patient-centered care. Picking and choosing when our feelings and experience matter erodes the trust built into those words. She had read a very disturbing article uh, when she tweeted that. So I wanted to ask you, what might the lasting implications of this be for uh patient and family engagement with uh, traditional health care? It hurts me to say it, but I'm going to be direct. Uh, I'm very concerned of the active erosion in trust. Uh, trust in what um, persons who worked in the space of patient, family, and caregiver advisory work thought um, they had in terms of, of partnership and collaboration and ability to work together, which, which quickly faded away in many areas. Uh, trust um, that hospitals and healthcare organizations um, were working in partnership or allyship with families and where that, again, went away overnight, where, you know, people's um, labels changed to you are just now a visitor and you are a vector of transmission, you could be harmful, and we can't have you in our hospital. Um, these are people who thought they were working in allyship, in partnership, where they were a trusted member of the healthcare team. So I worry about that trust, and I worry about that re regaining of trust across the system. And I want to say that again, this is not... Um, you know, this is in due deference to our frontline healthcare workers. Uh, you know, there's this, this was a, a, a massive situation where there were a lot of unknowns. Um, but the communication, the blanket restriction policies, the policies that are now becoming, it appears to be entrenched, um, are starting to, to build that distrust. And I'm hoping that we can um, course correct uh, on what's happening sooner rather than later. Julie Drury, thanks so much for joining me and for helping us better understand what essential partners in care are and who they are and what they do and how we need to think differently and more deeply about where the oath of do no harm should take us. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. Appreciate the opportunity. Now we'll be speaking with Melissa Jones, an experienced care partner on how being treated as just a visitor has impacted her and her family. Thanks for being here, Melissa. Thank you for having me. So before we get into what's happened to your family recently, uh, before the pandemic, you gained a lot of experience as a care partner to your then infant son. Can you please tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, in 2015, I was pregnant with my uh, first child, Elliot, um, and uh, pregnancy was great and super healthy, uh, but he surprised us all and came about six weeks early. Um, we were incredibly lucky, though. He was pretty healthy and was super big, uh, but about at about a week old, we um, our luck changed, and he got quite sick with um, a bowel disease called necrotizing enterocolitis, uh, and it caused us to um, be moved to a, an intensive care unit um, uh, 
in in Toronto and require um, emergency surgery at uh, seven days old. Um, and so Elliot lost about a third of his uh, intestine at that time. And we were in that intensive uh, care unit for about 75 days with him. Um, we were at the hospital 12 hours a day, seven days a week for that entire time. Um, and so it really was a crash course for me in uh, navigating the health system, um, navigating and advocating, advocating for um, a, a vulnerable person uh, in the healthcare system and uh, navigating and advocating for myself as well as a new mom who had just given birth. Um, and had a very different postpartum experience than I was anticipating. Um, and so really opened my eyes to how things work, uh, both for good um, and uh, and some of the challenges that we face. And I came out of it uh, with that appreciation um, and joined the family advisory network at the hospital we spent the most time in. Um, and, uh, and now I lend my voice um, for other parents who might be navigating a similar road and, and advocate for the patient and family perspective. So you, you know, through your lived experience really began to understand what collaboration and partnership um, with care teams really involves. Um, and now recently, uh, your mother uh, has uh, been challenged by uh, a few diseases and she had to attend at an emergency department during the pandemic. Can you please share with us what happened? Unfortunately, my mom's health has really declined in the last three years with a few serious um, life-threatening medical conditions that she's dealing with concurrently, um, and she'll occasionally have a, a flare-up. Um, and so a, a few weeks ago, uh, that's the position that we were in. Uh, my dad is her day-to-day uh, -day caretaker, um, but I do a lot of um, the logistics kind of remotely. And so uh, it was a distressing phone call that I received on a Saturday morning saying uh, my mom was not well at all and and they were unsure what to do uh, with the pandemic happening. Um, they they weren't sure if the best thing to do was uh, take her into the ER and, and what they would find when they got there. Um, but, you know, it ultimately I, I counseled them that it was it was likely the best thing for her in that moment, that it seemed serious enough that she, she should go in. Uh, but she was confused um, what I now know uh, was the beginning stages of a delirium. Um, and in addition, she's got some chronic lung issues. So is really weak and, and has some difficulty with her mobility, which is why my dad um, being involved in her care is so important. Uh, but unfortunately for us, um, during the pandemic, this means that he had to take her in uh, to the ER and essentially leave her at the door in a wheelchair. And so we were reliant on um, on the staff there uh, to care for her um, and in a delirium as well. So, you know, um, from my perspective, like getting her to the ER was incredibly important. That was all I was really focused on. And then, you know, as things started unfolding, I was uh, saw, you know, in some of the ways that this was, um, was, was incredibly difficult for us to manage as her family. Um, she wasn't able to speak on the phone, so we couldn't call her and help her advocate. Um, I did try and call into the hospital, but was essentially told um, by the ER staff that um, they were just too busy and that we couldn't really call in for updates, um, which, you know, I, I understand uh, in, in general, but when you're a family member trying to figure out what's going on um, with your loved one, uh, 
it really felt like at that moment we were shut out. Um, and it, it felt truly kind of hopeless. Like I, I really didn't know what was going to happen to my mom. And, um, and frankly, if she would even survive it, it she seemed to be deteriorating that quickly. Um, and so it was, it was quite, that was kind of the beginning of the challenge. She did end up getting admitted, uh, to the ward and, and things got a little bit better there in terms of communication. And I was able to, uh, get daily updates twice a day from her nurse, um, her nursing staff. And I was able to call into them, um, the nursing staff still wasn't able to call me. Um, so it was a bit of a burden, um, managing the care for my five-year-old working full-time and then, um, trying to call in for updates and, and manage things logistically. Um, and of course my dad as well, uh, he's a senior. And so I'm calling and, um, take, trying to take care of him every day. And it, it felt very much like for him, he lost his, his other half, um, uh, you know, in that moment, uh, not, you know, my mom survived, but, um, not having her around and not even being able to be with her in the hospital, it sort of set him adrift a little bit, um, in terms of, you know, uh, what he did day to day. And, and he just had a lot more time to think and stew and, and worry. So I was trying to pick up the pieces for him as well. Now, you know, given the complexity um, of your mom's uh, condition, um, you know, how, how was information communicated? And, you know, what, what do you think the impact of the loss of not only, you know, sort of the family's uh, advocacy, you know, if and when it was required, but also just in general information sharing? Yeah, we, we did unfortunately see a couple of incidents of medical oversight um, that my mom experienced as a result of the the break in continuity of her caregiving and um, and the lack of our ability to actually um, speak uh, with her care team. Um, so my mom does have a, um, a dialysis port in her arm and we knew as her caregivers that, um, she was never meant to get an IV or blood pressure or anything done on that arm to protect the, the port. Um, but of course, when you're making quick decisions in, in an emergency department, you're not, that wouldn't necessarily be a piece of information that would stand out, uh, super quickly to you. Um, so uh, unfortunately she did get an IV, uh, in, in, her arm and she wasn't also wasn't able to advocate for herself and we did also experience the incorrect dosage of a medication uh, being given to her um, which in the past has really set her back um, this particular dosage was um, was critical for her to uh, overcome one of her um, chronic conditions that she's been experiencing over the last few months and uh, it was a verbal order that was given uh, to my mom and and my dad, uh, but again, either it wasn't charted properly, or um, or was kind of buried deep in our chart that the staff didn't catch it for about five days, uh, which is a significant amount of time. So that was, you know, I think that was really frustrating um, to know this information and to be ready to give it and not really have a way to give it to anybody, um, and then see some negative impacts of it. Um, and not have that acknowledged at the end of the the day as well. And my subsequent calls with staff members and things like that, bringing it up, you know, nobody really said to us, Oh, you know, Hey, we probably should have checked this with you sooner. Um, I don't know 
uh, I don't know what folks were thinking about, you know, those, the, the preventable harms that kind of came out of it, um, in a way that will actually make improvements, but we certainly as her caregivers see it, uh, and, and hope that things improve for other family members. Yeah. One of the things Julie and I talked about, uh, uh, was that, you know, uh, experienced care partners and essential care partners are, you know, uh, partners in policy making as well as in, you know, delivery of care. So, you know, based on your experience, what what, what kind of um, policy improvements uh, would, would would you like to be able to see? Um, you know, there's this great hashtag, not just a visitor. Mm-hmm. What 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 do you want people, you know, current policymakers, uh, to know? Um, about how things uh, could be improved and the impact that the uh, no visitor uh, policy has had on you and your family. Yeah, I I, I want to let me talk about the impact first. You know, um, aside from uh, from the the few bits of medical oversight that my mom uh, unfortunately had to deal with in the hospital, you know, one thing that uh, can't be discounted is the emotional toll this takes. Um, I mentioned, you know, my dad sort of becoming unmoored a little bit um, with my mom uh, being separated from my mom and and not being able to advocate for her, be there with her physically when she was at uh, at her most vulnerable. Um, and the the impact that that takes on him emotionally, it was a, it was very much we were thrown into crisis. There was a lot of teary phone calls, um, a lot of uh, sleepless nights. Um, I. I still don't think that I'm sleeping uh, very well. And I know my parents aren't uh, either. Um, and, and beyond that sort of intense crisis moment, what that kind of translates to long-term is, you know, post-traumatic stress or um, other kind of uh, emotional burdens that we all care uh, carry with us. And certainly I think the way that we approach caring for my mom now, we are very uh, grateful and lucky that she was able to overcome um, this particular uh, crisis and come home to us. But how we care for her now at home is is very different. First of all, um, I traveled up uh, up north. About I live about four hours away from my parents, um, and came up to stay with them after a lot of debate and and thoughtful um, dialogue with my family. Uh, because of course we're supposed to be social distancing now, um, and so we really had to evaluate uh, both the risks that we posed to my parents and the risks that they posed to me as well. Um, but it made the most sense to come here because our goal is now shifted. To let's do everything we can to keep my mom out of the hospital because we can't go through another traumatic event like this, being separated and not able to advocate for her. Um, in addition, you know, like her medications going through, I've become a master of, of uh, medication reconciliation um, from a non-scientific standpoint, just making sure that all of her medications are organized. She's got blister packs. I know when she needs to take what. I'm monitoring her blood pressure, her oxygenation, um, her arterial um, heart rate, you know, all these things. Uh, I've it's kind of like kicked into overdrive. I've never uh, had to do this for my mom before, but my goal is now shifted to avoiding um, the scenario that, that we're in. And so that's it's like those pieces of the emotional toll that, that will carry with us. And certainly, you know, um, not to mention the triggers for me having experienced a, 
um, an acute care scenario and nearly losing my son five years ago. There's been a lot of flashbacks and things right now. Um, and so, you know, beyond that emotional toll, I think, uh, the question around policy is great. Um, because while we carry this emotional burden as caregivers, uh, I want to reiterate, and I, I, I feel like I can't say this, you know, firmly or loudly enough that, um, you know, we can set as caregivers, we can set aside, uh, these emotional, uh, you know, uh, upticks that we kind of deal with, we can set that aside uh, and really partner with policymakers to look at um, how things are are impacting us on the ground um, and 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 provide that that sober second thought. I love that phrase a lot. Um, I think I, I learned it actually from Julie um, that we need to just pause for a minute. Um, and and think about the policies that are in place and and how they impact families like mine. And that's why it's so important for me to share my story because I know that we aren't the only ones far from it that have navigated this um, this road with these COVID policies that were sort of put into place. Um, I think in in a bit too hasty of of a way, and now is a, as a great time. Um, I understand the reaction reaction to COVID, and uh, like I'm scared of it as well. Uh, I'm very scared of it, but we're now seeing that beyond the fear of COVID, there's many other things. There's a matrix of matrix of risks right now that we really need to stop pause, evaluate, and fit it in to how it works with COVID. Um, and, and using, you know, um, my mom's example is one of many, but if that helps spur that kind of pause and reflect, um, I would be incredibly relieved so that other families a month from now, two weeks from now, um, a year from now for, you know, God forbid, still dealing with COVID, don't have to uh, struggle uh, the way that my family has these last few weeks. Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your story, for being such an extraordinary uh, care partner to your son, to your mother, to your father. And, you know, I want you to know from me, you're certainly more than just a visitor. Thank you. Thank you so much.